This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. I'm Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And I'm here, as always, with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And who do we have on the pod today? Well, today we've got a special guest all the way from Australia, and it's Byron Kennedy of Speed 3D. Fantastic to be here, and good to talk to you both. Yeah, and Speed 3D is maybe uh, yeah deserves to be much wider known because they're a company that makes uh, uh, well three D printing technology essentially uses cold spray and cold spray was a coating technology previously. And what the Speed 3D team have done is turned it into an additive manufacturing technology, whereby compressed air sprays a metal powder uh, from a stationary nozzle onto a workpiece. The workpiece, the part is actually moving so that they can deposit the material everywhere. And the really amazing thing about uh, Speed 3D is they can deposit like let's say 100 grams a minute. And one of their machines could deposit, could make like 30 tons of parts in a year. So the speed is, is a huge advantage of this technology, uh, hence the name potentially. Uh, and that, so it's much, <laughs> much, faster, much, much faster than uh, other technologies. At the same time, what's really cool is that they can use just the MIM powders or regular powders. So they blow these powders in the compressed air and then they, they, they kind of cold weld to the, to the work piece. So they don't need to be completely spherical. So the, the, the powder, the, the feedstock is also much less uh, costly. At the same time, they do this with compressed air and air environment. So they don't need the argon as well. So the, they can make things for like tens of dollars instead of hundreds of dollars. So it's, it's a very exciting technology, I think, that deserves to be a lot uh, wider known. So that's why we're having uh, Byron on today. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming, Byron. And so tell us a little bit more about how you guys got started. Yeah, so, um, so I'm one of the founders as well as um, Steve, and, and our background was um, actually in electric motors. So we previously had another company designing electric motors, and um, we built that company. We sold that to a large U.S. manufacturer of motors and worked with them for 10 years. So our background is in manufacturing and, and in volume production. And um, we worked a lot, lot in the casting, doing a lot of castings, so, and these were in volume production. So you put that together and we came across during that process, um, metal 3D printing. But the reality in the space which we worked, which was, you know, traditional castings, and, and this was electric motors, but traditional castings was a big part of what we did. This 3D printing technology offered a lot of advantages. Now, when I say 3D printing, this was traditional 3D printing at the time. Um, but the challenge, as, as everyone knows, is laser-based printing is very expensive and very slow. So it offered the advantages which we were after, which was flexibility and, and the ability to um, develop and prototype very, very quickly. But it lacked the fundamental um, uh, factors which is required for manufacturing, which is speed and cost. So when we finished up the motor company, we said, we thought, you know, could we develop a printing technology which actually solved this speed and cost issue? And, and thus the company was born. So the idea was, was very simple. Um, how do we take metal 3D printing into the casting market? Um, knowing that, you know, the, the laser-based technologies, although 
wonderful in terms of being able to make very, very complex parts is not going to get there in speed and cost. So we, we set about looking for a technology and we came across this cold spray technology, which is used primarily by the military for repair. And we thought, could we then take a repair technology and add the smarts to be able to then build parts? And, um, you know, a couple of years of development and, and then, yes, it, it, it absolutely could be done. And, and that's really where the, when the company was born. So, so that's taking us through from, uh, you know, our, our pre-ideas all the way through to the launch of our first products. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, what makes it cold or what, tell us a little bit more about why, how this process works exactly. Like what's fusing if you're not using a laser. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly right. So, so we, what we have in the printer is a, in, in terms of hardware is a small rocket nozzle. And what, what a rocket nozzle does is takes, uh, takes, um, pressure and temperature and turns it into speed. So when we, you know, this, this is normal for a normal rocket and that's what shoots rockets into space. You know, you take uh, pressure and temperature, um, very, very high pressure and, and temperatures in rocket nozzles, and then you get very, very fast rockets. So what we do in the printer is the same. So we, we actually put compressed air in. So we have a compressor, um, which then takes air and you can use other, other, um, other gases as well, but of course, air is the cheapest, so so that's why we focus on air. Um, we then uh, pressurize it up to about 30 bar with a normal off-the-shelf compressor. We then heat that air up to a temperature, let's say, 500 Celsius. So it's called cold spray, but suddenly I'm talking about 500 Celsius, and that's hot. But what a rocket nozzle is then doing is taking that pressure and temperature, and it actually turns the air into um, the air that comes out of the rocket nozzle is, is fascinating. It's about a minus 100 Celsius, but it's also then traveling at 1,000 meters a second or three times the speed of sound. So what happens is we then inject the metal particles, uh, which then pass through the rocket nozzle. They get accelerated up to, you know, about somewhere between 500 to 800 meters a second, say, and then they impact upon the um, on, upon a surface. So it's called cold spray because the actual deposition is, is relatively cold. So we we are we are fire, you know um, spraying a lot of air over it. So the part itself gets to you know 50, 60, 80 degrees Celsius, um, but but certainly not melting temperature. So the actual particle. It bonds by a combination of mechanical interlocking and also um, metallurgical bonding. So when the particle hits, it does melt, but just on the surface of the particle. So so the rest of the particle or the powder stays intact. Is there a post-process that you have to do as a result? Or Yeah, yeah. So, so as you can imagine, you're firing these uh, metal powders at supersonic speeds. When they hit, they then deform. So what we have is a lot of plastic deformation. So think of it when you get a piece of copper, So um, and, and then you bend it back and forth, and that copper will eventually get quite hard. And that's what's happening during our process. So we spray it, and the, and the, um, the metal itself will be hard um, and not very ductile. So then we put it through a simple um, heat treat, um, which then gives it the ductility and, and performance that is required for, for metals. So this is actually very similar to a casting process. So in a casting process, um, you cast the metal, you then heat treat the metal, and then you machine the metal. 
So in this process, we we spray we spray the metal, we heat treat it, and then we machine it. And and actually, it's it's the same as every three D printing process out there. There's always um, some sort of post heat treating, and then mm-hmm. then there's also some sort of um, uh, post machining as well. In in ninety nine percent of cases. So does that mean that the the, the, the properties of the material are also similar to cast parts as well? Or? Yeah, exactly right. Yep, yep. So you know, we do a lot of um, uh, aluminum or aluminium, depending on which country you're in, and um, the you know a, a, a typical. Um, so I'm a I'm a metric person, unfortunately. So a typical cast. Oh, good, good, um, good. This is a metric. Yeah, this is a metric yeah. podcast. Metric only. Uh, good, good. Metric only podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, a typical um, aluminium is uh, you know a three five six aluminium. So the most standard aluminium out there, yeah, it might be two hundred ten megapascals, three percent elongation. We'll we'll typically get about two forty, two fifty megapascals, and then about four to six six percent elongation. So so we're better than casting. Not as good as forging, um, but certainly better than casting, which is our target market. Wow. You know, I cast some stuff. So if we're looking at this, this is quite interesting because it also means that like you could maybe like you could actually change the microstructure then through changing the this jet or is that not possible? No, it's actually, it's actually the complete opposite, interestingly. So what happens okay, in a normal laser yeah. printing process, you start yeah. with the metal powder and then you melt yeah. it and then you train to microstructure. Mm-hmm. All they're doing is yeah. starting with powder and that hits and the microstructure of the powder will remain in place. So yeah. it's very, very different to a melting process. So this is this is um, a solid state process. So you know mm-hmm. this is very, very exciting for for metallurgists worldwide because the ability to have solid state um, processing of metals is very difficult to do normally. Normally, you you're melting it with casting or lasers or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Solid state is is really the the new technologies which are which are coming along. So you you can switch materials along the way. Like if you wanted a five percent copper fill on aluminum, for example. Yeah, a- you, absolutely. You could pepper so, it in. Exactly right. So there's all sorts of options. So when you start to talk about the um, options for materials, uh, it, it does open up a wealth of opportunities. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So we can we can join materials. So if you have a you know aluminum base and you want to spray copper on it, for instance, for mm-hmm. um, thermal conductivity, that's very very easy to do. That we do that every day of the week. Um, but let's say now you want to get more exotic. In, instead of a um, just spraying copper on, you you want a mix of of um, you know some of the materials we mix together is say copper and chrome or copper and tungsten, for instance. So you could start with aluminium, then you could spray on uh, copper chrome or a copper tungsten. But then during, as you're building up the part, you could actually then vary the blend of that material. So you could start with, you know, 50% copper, 50% tungsten, and then mm-hmm. vary it along the way until the end, then you've got pure copper coming out. So all of those opportunities are available with the technology because essentially you're just mixing and spraying spraying those powders. Are uh, you using that to make like gradient parts or something like that or not? Or is that not, uh, is it too early for that? Or we're, we're doing some initial work on gradient parts. The, the interesting thing about gradiated parts today is the challenge act is way back in the CAD. 
So there's not oh. a CAD package out there that can vary a material on the fly. So how do we then tell the printer that, you know, we want to uh, vary the printer? Now, you can do that manually by, you know, adjusting the dials as you go along effectively. Um, but the, you know, the CAD packages don't yet have that ability. I have been told that they are going to or, or there's some out there, but in the vast majority, that hasn't been open to engineers in the past. So we're working with um, specific... Uh, research groups and some um, specific customers on on those graded materials in in a in a high level um, engineers just haven't had the tools in the past to be able to build that so we you know we'd like that to happen because our technology is sitting there ready for it to to be able to build those parts i'm curious like can you go as crazy right now of say like using a non-conductive metal and a conductive metal to make wires inside of a physical part uh yeah there there's certainly <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far like plastics is a bit of a challenge for us um but oh can um, you do you can do plastics though as well you could integrate plastics into the like you could no, do no, metal and but no no you can't do that it, okay in in theory in the academic world yes they do some plastics right. but it's Got it's it. um not not a really not a not a commercial opposite um viable technology at the moment in the plastics we can do things like spraying metals on ceramics and other things like that. In in terms of wires, no, you wouldn't do it. Um, you know, we, it's quite interesting. We spent a lot of time building electric motors, you know, over 10 years in the electric motor industry. People often ask us about electric motors and wires. And, and right. <laughs> that's a challenge, I can tell you right now. So it's not one that I've seen a viable solution for for 3D printing. But So you're competing against sintering. So you're – you and the – Part of your thing seems to be that it's cost effective uh, in comparison to sintering. Would you is that accurate or? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll start very high level, and and um, and there's this funny um, uh, metric which we use, which is used in the manufacturing world. So, three D printing doesn't think like manufacturing, and and that's really something that needs to change. So in the manufacturing world, you think of dollars per kilogram. So you pick up a electric motor, for instance. Um, a manufacturing guy, by picking it up, will be able to tell you plus or minus $5 how much that costs by the weight of it. You know, there's, there's X kilos of steel, X kilos of copper, X kilos of aluminium. Um, you know the price of each of those. You add a factor of 10% for manufacturing, and there's your overall price. Um, so dollars per kilo is very, very important. We, we have these funny metrics, which is cubic centimeters per something or another, which I've never worked out in my head. Um, no. But in, <laughs> in terms of manufacturing, it's all about dollars per kilo. So you should be like the industry should be able to pick up a part and say that is a hundred dollar part because um, it's all about the material input. Now that's when you get into true manufacturing. Um, and so when you talk about everything from plastics through to metals, through to cows and beef, all you do is you buy a, a, a dollar per kilo rate. And if you actually plot these things, and we've done this, it's a very interesting exercise, uh, plastics, um, beef, meat, uh, metals. Um, if you're talking full-scale volume production of something, you're looking at about $1 to $10 a kilo. If you're looking at high volume production, you're looking at that sort of ten to a hundred dollars a kilo, um, and if you're above ten hundred dollars a kilo, you're into niche and, and mm -hmm. low volume production, and that yeah. and that 
and, and you can plot that across many, many commodities out there and you'll find that the numbers actually make sense. So traditional sintering laser-based 3D printing is about $1,000 to $5,000 a kilo. And there's physics limits around that, um, which you just can't change. Um, you know, you can throw lasers, you can throw all that sort of stuff, but you do the dollars a kilo. 26 lasers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the... So when, once you're up in a thousand to five thousand dollars a kilo, you're, you're really relegated to niche manufacturing. So the important thing in manufacturing is getting into that ten to a hundred dollars a kilo rate, and that's where we sit. And the numbers are very very simple. When you look at the machine, so depreciation, amortization, throw in some labour, throw in some overheads, uh, electricity. It's you know assuming it's two shifts, so normal production rate. Our machine's about ten dollars a kilogram. And then you add to that the powder price. So it's very, very simple then to work out, you know, from our, you know, you pick up a part, you should be able to work out very, very quickly how much that costs in in production. It's a little bit more difficult for something. <laughs> yeah, 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 well. That, but you can do that, some more some more crazy things that you couldn't do in a normal centering environment. So, yeah, that, that, yeah. yeah, and that's, that's how manufacturing thinks. So... You need to be able to pick up a part very quickly and go. That's a that's a hundred dollar part, um, and my existing part is, you know, if my existing part's ten dollars and that's a hundred dollar part, obviously the economics don't work. Doesn't work. Um, but if they pick up that part and go, that's a hundred bucks, and my existing part's a hundred or two hundred, then then yes, let's talk about a business case. That that's that's the world of manufacturing. Well, like so, right now I, I manufacture hot ends. And um, are you saying like with your stuff right now, a small hot end, you know, that's mm -hmm. steel, stainless steel, copper mix. So you have a heat barrier kind of thing going on there. Um, you can do that within like, you know, cause it's less than a gram. It's like a gram or two grams. Um, you can do that in a, in a low cost $5, $2 kind of range, a dollar. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no problems. Like we, the, Ooh. the, um, the converse of that, we we don't do extremely high precision. So if you're talking a couple of grands, I, I presume you're, um, you have a lot of precision around that particular part. So where we we target castings, and and you know when I say castings, these are the size of a a baseball or a football. Got or it. A, so it's got to, it's, it should, ideally it's a bigger part. It's not yeah, like exactly, a little, exactly. you're not doing a little yeah. gear for, for a, a gear drive or something like that. that you're doing, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that's the world of casting. So, you know, yeah, electric motors, for instance, you know, a, a, an electric motor might be the size of a football. Um, it's got castings on both ends. They weigh about, you know, I don't know, kilo, kilo, or half a kilo that that's kind of parts that's the kind of um, you know all the way up to um you know our biggest uh bigger machines do about 40 kilograms so we can do um you know rocket nozzles um those sorts of things up to about a meter diameter about by about 700 high so you know we're sort of in the the baseball up to uh, uh i don't know uh, the size of a golf club and bigger uh, what I like about this is also the feedstock can be like you can basically use MIM feedstock or any kind of powder feedstock to a reasonable degree, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the feedstock is 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 an important element, um, especially you know I, I harp on about this manufacturing and and price a lot, but that's really what our focus is. So to be able to you know, so the numbers, as I said, quite simple. 
10 bucks a kilo plus the the feedstock. So really the price of the pardon is driven by the feedstock. So, you know, you don't want to be using a $100 kilo uh, $100 a kilo powder. You know, if you can push the price of the powder down, then you can actually compete with traditional manufacturing very very cost effectively. And so then it comes to the powder. Um, and um, you know, traditionally metal powders have been graded and 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 um, specified to an inch of their life, and that's pushed the price right up. We've gone the other way, and we said to the metal powder manufacturers, you know, where's your where's your volume powders? Can we use those? And and we optimize around those traditional commodity powders. Um, you know, there's always trade-offs, of course, because if you want the ultimate performance, you know, you've got to pay for it, um, or you could accept a lower performance possibly, but, you know, be a, a tenth the price. So there, there's always those trade-offs. So it's, it's not as simple as saying, you know, we can do everything do at the lowest cost. And do you work Think with gas atomized? We, we typically, so we, let's say our, our two main materials, so we have four core materials, um, which is aluminium, copper, aluminium, bronze, which is really interesting, and then um, stainless steel. So, um, so aluminium you can't um, uh, water atomize uh, because of um, safety reasons. So we have to use gas atomize for the aluminium. But both the stainless steel and the copper, we prefer the water atomize because you know you might be at a third or a fifth the price of a gas atomized powder or a tenth of the price. So the water atomized powders are much, much cheaper. So our focus is always on can we can we keep the cost down by using those low-cost commodity powders? What would be um, interesting, actually, uh, also, is to talk to people who – are you working with people who do prep powders? No, I'm not, not familiar with prep powders. I'll have to ask you about that afterwards. Okay, okay. So prep is a process of actually really high precision powders, but they have a lot of um, stuff that's not really usable for um, uh, for additive because uh, the powders are too large, the particle sizes are too large. So they have a process that makes a, uh, you know, it's essentially, well, it's, it's a similar process, but it makes just a wide variety of powders, which a very narrow band is within the range of uh, which would be uh, used for, for, uh, um, uh, for, for powder bed fusion. So there, they have a bunch of other stuff that they would then be commoditized as a, as a side process of this, or as a kind of like side catch of this, uh, as this process. So that would be, if you, you know people like me, you can touch with some people that do prep. If you knew people who work with prep, then as a process, instead of just regular gas atomization, it would be, I think, very advantageous for you and them as well. Uh, yeah, that would just be that's the particle. Yeah. yeah, the particle sizes and the particle distribution, because you could take up to 45 or 50 micron or what? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no problems. Like we generally have a D50 of about 30 micron, you know, roughly speaking, but it, it changes a little bit across the powders. But um, um, you know, r- roughly speaking, in that in that order. Okay, that would be really interesting. I think it would be really interesting for you guys as well. But I love the fact that you're focusing on this low cost kind of stuff yeah. generally. I mean, uh, and and I can ask, the machine's open, right? I can throw in my own powder if I want, right, or not? Or yeah, yeah, yep. Like most of their customers, of course, will will use our powders because we say, you know, use this powder, this recipe, and then you get this performance. But you know, if people want to use their own powders, that's that's fine. How much does a machine cost? Yeah, um, so we either lease them or we sell them outright. Um, so, roughly speaking, in um, in in let's say U.S. dollars, because it's it's yeah. uh, the easiest. You know, the the smaller machine. Is roughly fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a month. 
the bigger one is up around that thirty to forty thousand dollars a month, um, and and that model is working very very nicely. So you know people have the ability to um, to try it. Um, you know they'll they'll take a subscription for for twelve months, eighteen months. 24 months, whatever they require. And that's enabling people get in the market to try it to, to, um, to, and, and not really to have the burden of outlaying a large amount of capital. So, um, so we will sell them outright, but really our preference is, is the subscription model. And do you do that with the investors? Cause investors love that like subscription stuff as well. Is that, <laughs> is that what drives this or? No, is it just um, what makes sense. It, it makes sense for our business. Yeah. Yeah. What was the price again? Was yeah, it again? yeah, uh, yeah, thirty thousand to twenty-five. And so then, uh, as part of that subscription, are you you're you're physically transporting the machines to location, right? A, B, yeah, C, and, right? and that's that's the beauty about this. So um, these machines are very very robust, and and we've we've done some videos late last year of the work we were doing, for instance, with the Australian Army. And um, the Army actually take the machines and and not just put it into a lab not just put it into a workshop, but they put it on the back of their truck and take it into the middle of the bush and right. they run the printers in the middle of the bush. And and this has proven the robustness of the machine, the reliability of the machine. You know, we were printing in, in 40 degree, you know, 90% humidity with dust and storms and, and you name it. Um, and, and the printer just doesn't miss a beat. Um, and, and that's because, you know, we do make it with a lot of robust um uh, equipment, proven equipment. You know, we don't have, um, you know, fancy optics or anything like that, which which certainly wouldn't be able to handle the the back right. of a you know a Rheinmetall truck for um for three hours on a, on a dirt road, and and worse. You know that that's what we're able to do is to be able to transport these printers around and and make them you know usable wherever people um are wanting to to print parts, and that's one of the business models which is really um, paying dividends for us is, is the ability to print parts when and where people want. Um, you know, people talk about the cost of a part being very important. Now, for customers like Defence, that's not the case. So, you know, a part it is it is a case to a degree. So, I, I shouldn't be so flippant. But um, usually, you know, the applications we've worked with Defence, it's not the cost of the part. So, you know, we. Yeah, there's various examples that we published about brackets and and um, various things like that. And for instance, there was a part which was used on a uh, a fuel pump um, on, and this was used to fill up the fuel. Of course, was used to fill up the rest of their vehicles, and this was used to prime the the fuel pumps. And um, and this part was broken um, and kept breaking, so they had. Uh, I think it was four of these particular ves- vehicles, and and it was break. It had broken on three of them. So the thing is, if if the last one goes, then they can't fill up their their um the rest of their vehicles. So so the part itself might have only been a forty dollar part or a, you know a hundred dollar part, but it's the fact that without that part, that you know you're immobilizing the rest of your whole brigade. Right. That's the important thing for applications such as defence, but it then also ties into you know oil and gas, mining, rail, marine, those heavy industries essentially. So that's why we always say you know it's not it's not the cost of the part; it's the cost of not having the part, which is the important thing there. 
And I could totally see that this is the combination. Like we had Molly Works on before this, so Chris and Anta Molly, Molly Works. And they have this gas atomizer in a container. And I think, especially for military or austere areas, the idea of having a gas atomization facility and then your printer, I think would be very, very powerful to take like, right? you know, shells, shells and stuff and then turn it into parts. Not only that, but also you could see it in disaster zones where you can, if you can mm -hmm. scrape rubble metal and then turn it into parts that are needed. Yeah, and I think that's a bit closer than you think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I don't think that's that's what I'm saying. Like we're we've been talking to people that are making the powder out of scrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, we've, so. we've, <laughs> we've we've certainly printed um material like scrap material which has been powderized put in the printer and it works perfectly fine so yeah. um so that is happening across various um divisions yeah your biggest issue i think is that you're, you're you're kind of like swimming alone kind of you know yeah how is this how are you guys the only ones out there doing this yeah yeah, so, so, yeah um it's hard um to start with uh it's the answer uh but um <laughs> So cold spray, as we said, you know, it's been around. It was invented by the Russians in the 80s, um, commercialized really in the early 2000s um, and saw applications, you know, for, for the next 10 years beyond that in terms of repair. Um, but it's not a trivial thing to to take a cold spray nozzle and then turn that into a part. And, and that did take um, quite a bit of development. So, you know, people that always, you know, when we started the company, people always said, that's a great idea. Someone should do that. And we're like, well, why hasn't anyone done that? And we just kept on asking ourselves. And eventually we said, well, because it's hard. This yeah, but, <laughs> but it is hard. Um, and and now we're there. That's good. And yes, we do have patents around that. Um, but, you know, um, it, it's a small industry. You know, it is good to have other people in the market, um, but it's a difficult thing to do. So, um, right. Uh, it, it's a niche that we're certainly targeting, but it's a very big niche because casting is is um, you know the predominant way to manufacture parts today. Yeah. And what kind of customers do you have at the moment? So it's it's mainly around heavy industrial. Um, so defense is is the big one for us, and and it's the one which we're targeting. Especially you know everyone's coming out of COVID or 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 hoping to come out of COVID soon, and defense has really driven um, ourselves and and a lot of other industries uh for the last um for the last 12 months plus so we we see defense being at least 50 percent of our business going forward um uh, as it is now um so that's the big one and then into um manufacturing and and a lot of research uh work as well so um and going forward however um our target will be in the heavy industrial market so so when i say heavy industrial it's mining rail oil and gas uh, automotive, marine, um, and, and even into the aerospace sector when once that's recovered. We won't see too much in the um, medical space. Um, you know, we're not going to do hip replacements and we're not going to do teeth and we're not going to do those sort of fancy things. That's not for us. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we can do, you know, antimicrobial coatings. We did a lot of work during COVID in antimicrobial, so the ability for copper to kill viruses upon touch, and, and that is certainly um an interesting topic um and you know we proved out you know um with um scientific studies that you know you kill COVID-19 uh with copper um so that's sort of some fascinating areas but you know our our areas in in marine will be uh, sorry in in medical will be primarily around the antimicrobial work 
because it, it seems like the, the, the well, you didn't mention marine. I think I think marine would be a really exciting opportunity for you guys as well, because the part some parts are very very large as well, and they're very difficult to do for with the traditional technologies. I think I think that would be really nice, uh, especially since you're good at like uh, the factory stuff, and I think that's a really nice combination as well. Yeah, yeah, we're we're excited about marine because you know the the thing about marine is um, a couple of things that you know it's a um, uh, obviously, it's it's a market where corrosion is is very very important. Yeah. So um um so for three D printing, it's great because you have a constant supply of parts because people are always um needing new parts for co corrosion resistance. So then you say, you know, what materials are good in in those corrosion environments? Um, you know, sixty sixty one aluminium is is fantastic. Um, you know, you you don't put the traditional three D printed aluminium in there the a l m g whatever it is i call it yep. <laughs> yeah that, that one um and uh because of the corrosion issues but 6061 yeah. is fantastic then you've got stainless steel and the other one which we're most excited about is aluminium bronze which is a material which has properties similar to mild steel but um, highly corrosion yeah. how thin can you do a part like, I was just wondering about battery technology. Um, uh, so in the in our rocket nozzle, this essentially sprays a six millimeter wide track. Mm -hmm. um, so in the uh, XY, for instance, we we build at about six millimeters in the Z direction, about one and a half to two millimeters. You can build thinner in the in the Z if you need to, but generally. In the applications which we're targeting, which are these, you know, replacement cast parts, um, right? That, yeah. That's always been okay. You know, are you targeting? Are you are you even coming up against the rest of our industry? Like, I can imagine that somebody's like going, like, do I get an AOS M two ninety or a Speed three D? I mean, you're very much targeting very different uh, people and applications, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yep, yep. So we we always wonder if we should go to three D printing shows because. Yeah. You know, a lot of people that go to 3D printing shows are after, you know, fancy titanium brackets for their, I don't know, <laughs> one or whatever it may be. Um, and, and generally that's not us. Um, so we, we're actually a bit more suited to the traditional manufacturing shows, you know, traditional casting and those sorts of things where where people are looking to change the, the way they cast. So, you know, if you're a traditional casting manufacturer, um, you know, you're very good at doing runs of, you know, 10,000 cast parts. But then a customer comes along and said, I just want 100 or 1,000. And you go, ah, really? How about we run yeah. you 10,000? And, um, and that's where, you know, they could supplement their technology. So you're never going to replace casting because, you know, when, when you do get into high volume, it's, it's very, very economical. Um, but when you're not in when you're not in the high volumes, casting is a is a terribly complex thing to do for for mid sized volumes, and that, and that's where we can then sit into to those particular customers, uh, you know these mid sized volumes. But as you said, you know one machine could do about thirty ton of material a year. So so just to give you an example, you know from our understanding, you know a typical SLM machine will do about 250 kilos so what's that you would need um haven't done the math um 1200 slm machines i think to to equate to one of our machines 
Um, and and that's the so when you when you look at thirty ton, that's in casting, it's it's not a lot, but it's also a decent amount. So um, so it's a, it's that mid size mid mid range volume production where where this really suits nicely. And, and uh, why aren't there any services like if I come to you with a new part? I mean, I, I know you can't do like intricate parts really, or a lot of uh, internal spaces, right? It's a cheese whiz kind of stuff, right? So it's like it's like if it works on the outside, you know. Um, so, but but why can't I upload to a service and get a part made by you guys? Is it difficult to get the first part done, the toolpath and all that stuff? Or no, no, we've got we've got service bearers around the world. So, um, so fit in Germany, for instance, and and. Oh, okay. um, Metal in 3D is just setting up in El Salvador as well. So, so what about we're, the US? Um, nothing in the US. So we, ah, we man, <laughs> we, we are hassling the service providers at the moment for exactly that. Um, now we, we can do cooling channels, however. So, um, so there are absolutely options to to put internal features in in it. Um, you know, there are some like everything. There's rules and and, and regulations which you need to meet, uh, but um, but you know, cooling channels are certainly something we work on. Well, I love I love the fact that the, the idea to order parts in this because I think it'd be a really fun technology to experiment with, and a lot of uh, oh, stuff yeah. that people don't know. You know. Oh, can you add on to parts? So if you yeah, put yeah, on the no problem, yeah, no problem. Great. <laughs> and there's yeah, rejuvenating so molds and stuff like that. Is that yeah, you repair like tooling thing? and stuff of that nature, or is yeah, that too that, accurate? Um, no, you. So you you build it back up and then you machine it back. Like right, 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 you, you like yeah, spark yeah. Erode it. Fair enough. Yep, yep. But you know, adding metal is always the problem. Like my tooling guy always says, taking away metal, no problem. Adding metal, problem. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's quite interesting when we're printing. We're exactly the opposite. It's like don't put metal where you don't need to because you know if it's you taking it away, it's extra process. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> we, we just keep building it up. We don't want to put metal where we don't need to. So, so it's exactly the opposite. Right, <laughs> uh, but it but it is interesting when you deal with the machining guys. Like people say, um, you know, from the outset they'll say, you know, we want a very thin wall um, and very accurate. So you say, well, you know, if you want accuracy in any three D printing process, you're always going to post machine it. And then you talk to your machinists, and then they say, well, you've got to add about two millimeters to it. Yeah. So if you want a wall of of two to three or four millimeters, you're going to be printing six millimeters to yeah. make it actually machinable. So that's what we find, even in the in the thin parts, um, you're generally starting with with a with. If you want high accuracy, you want the machining to be cheap. You've got to put the material there to to enable the machinists to be able to have a have a go to be able to get very good those very good tolerances that they're after. Yeah. And and Byron, where do you hope to be in a couple of years? What's your ambition for the firm? Um, so, so we've got a, uh, as, as we alluded to, we've, we've got a very strong push into the defense sector. We see that being our, our number one sector, um, in, in the next few years. Um, and that's all around this expeditionary metal 3d printing, you know, printing in the field, um, and enabling people to build parts, um, when and where they want them. So that will build from the defense sector. You know, defense is good because they, they generally, let's say de-risk technologies, that's that's one of their their purposes yep. in the world, interestingly. Um, that will then flow through to rail, oil and gas mining, those those heavy industrial sectors. Um, and then interestingly, we we then also operate at the mass manufacturing 
end of the market. So there's some applications which are going through testing now, and and the volumes for those are are you know 100 plus tons of material per year, um, and and they would be you know a by far the largest manufacturing um, AM projects in the world in terms of um, tonnage of material per year. So, so we want some of those to hit the market. And because, you know, AM, AM really needs that. They, they need that boost up. You know, we've lived on the GE rocket nozzle for too long now. Um, it, it's really about, you know, the what's coming next and, and being able to prove to the world that, you know, AM can, can produce some, um, you know, 150 ton of material a year. That that's the real applications which which we want to see to come to the market and, and to really give the industry that that next leg up that they need to be um to be seen as being more than just a prototyping tool. Okay. I think that's a wonderful vision. Is it heat sinks? Brian, is it heat sinks? <laughs> no, it's not. A heat sinks is one oh. that we're interested in. Uh. <laughs> Ooh, Everyone's into heat sinks. Yeah, heat sinks. I'm all about heat sinks, man. That, okay. Okay. Now I'm really curious. Actually, <laughs> now I'm really, uh, they, now I really want. They are certainly um, high volume niche applications. They're, they're ones that people come to us and go, I didn't even realize that market existed. So um, you won't okay. guess it in really years. <laughs> okay, springs. Okay. It's right. springs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Cool, cool. All right, guys. So this is a wonderful episode. Uh, thank you uh, for being here uh, as always, uh, Max. Yeah, no, thanks, Joris. This, this was fascinating. And uh, yeah, and Byron, thank you for being here as well. Uh, thank you for inviting me on the show. We're very appreciated appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. My name is Joris Peels. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.